0: Welcome to the Emma Gunn Show. Life's defining moments don't always feel that great when they're happening. In the moment, they can feel challenging, uncomfortable, difficult, impossible even. But with hindsight, they can take on a different shape. With the benefit of that 2020 perspective, we can begin to see how the most difficult times were a life lesson we didn't know we needed to learn. Each week, I ask my guests to share their biggest life learnings to date as we explore those difficult, swampy, infuriating times and how they shaped them, all from a comfortable distance that's afforded them the time to take the positive out of what might have seemed nothing but negative at the time. Because whether it's obstacles, challenges, risks, excuses, opportunities, successes, failures or curveballs, they are the reason they are the person they are today, the person sitting in front of me on this episode of The Emma Gunn Show.
1: I'm very aware that opportunities don't always come by a second time. You don't always get a second chance. And so if it feels right in the moment for me, I take the opportunities as they come. And then I just realized, well, actually, you know what? That is not, That's not other people's stuff is not a good enough reason for me to stop pursuing what I care about and my ambitions and the things that I want to achieve in my life. There is no one right answer. There is no one way of doing anything. All you can do quite literally is control the controllables, right? You can't control the uncontrollable because obviously that would be a contradiction. Either it's important enough to you that you do keep going or you make peace with the fact that actually maybe it wasn't that important to me to begin with and I'm just gonna, you know, again, just sort of let that let that be all of that time and effort. It wasn't, you know, necessarily wasted. It was just I had to go through that to realize that I didn't want it. I guess if, you know, again, I had to distill my life's philosophy in any one phrase it's to never say no to an adventure. And I mean, you know, regardless, or maybe not regardless, but many people obviously have different ideas of what happens after this life. My view is this is all we've got in this form, in this iteration, this is all we are getting.
2: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
0: My guest today is Rupal Patel, a former CIA officer turned serial entrepreneur who, in her role as an analyst and field agent for the CIA, served in active war zones, advised four-star generals, and was recognized by the CIA director for her superior support of the President of the United States. After her time in the CIA, Rupal earned an MBA from London Business School and as a CEO, leadership consultant, strategic advisor, coach and mentor, she now helps founders, leaders and next generation changemakers rewrite the rules of success. She was born in New York and raised on Staten Island and went on to earn a BA in political science at Columbia University, a master's in international relations at the University of Chicago and that MBA, MBA from London Business School. As you know, I love to see the world through my guests' eyes and to learn from their experiences, which differ so much from my own. And I cannot imagine how the world seems or the lessons learned given RuPaul's incredible career and experiences, which is why I'm so delighted she's joining me to share them on this episode of the
1: podcast. Welcome to The Emma Gunn Show. Thank you. Thank you, Emma. I'm really, really excited to be here.
0: Um, we should say uh, I'm in London, you're in Berlin. We are on yes. a video call. There maybe I can hear a little bit of something something but it okay. sounds good to me so listeners just in case you can hear I hope it's not too distracting but what a pleasure to get to talk to someone with your experience Ah, oh, thank you um so just tell me a little bit about your career and how did you become an analyst for the, the CIA
1: yeah uh so I Let's see. Gosh, uh, my career. Well, it wasn't part of the plan. I was never one of those children who had a, a solid answer to that question of what do you want to be when you grow up? And I spent most of my my time as a university student just exploring different, um, yeah, different subjects and things that interested me and and just trying lots of different things. I think this sort of notion of experimentation and trial and error um, has probably underpinned a lot of my career, but I, yeah, I I sort of fell into political science as it were, because it combined a lot of the things that I was already interested in, you know, learning about different cultures, learning different languages, uh, exploring the world through a different lens. And um, so that's what I studied as an undergraduate. And I, as part of that, or because of that degree, I ended up doing a summer internship at the US embassy in Muscat Oman and it was one of the most incredible eye-opening formative experiences as I you know I would have had in my life as a then 19 year old and I thought this is going to be it for me I'm going to join the foreign service I'm going to be a diplomat this is this is it and then when I was studying for my masters uh, at Chicago uh, I got invited to apply to the CIA and I thought oh gosh I had no idea that there was scope yeah <laughs>
0: how, how does that happen because I've seen <laughs> alias and like how do you get invited to apply to join the CIA <laughs>
1: Well, so there, there, there was a gentleman who was there on campus. And uh, he basically asked me to submit my resume. And I it maybe was because of my, um, my international affairs degree that they were sort of looking for graduates in that capacity, or the fact that I, uh, you know, speak different languages, or who knows why or what it was, but that's sort of the, the the how of how it happened. And at the time, it sort of I just did it as a bit of a lark. I was like, oh, well, it wasn't really ever part of the plan. I'd never even considered that the CIA had room for people like me for, I didn't even know analysts were a thing. Um, and I, and I went for it and it, you know, through the course of that process of like getting to meet some of the people that I would potentially be working with, understanding a bit more about what I would be doing. I was like, "Oh yeah, this sounds perfect. I want, I want this, sign me up. So a year later, it took them about a year to go through my, um, for me to get through the background investigation process, uh, and a year later, I I got the call saying, "Yep, you've been cleared to to start. When do you want to? When do you want to come?"
0: The reason why I find this so fascinating is because this is kind. This is what you were doing. You were kind of behind the velvet rope, if you like, of
1: yeah.
0: of our uh, of the population of, of what goes on. Like you see, like there's normal life that goes on, yeah. and then there's this whole other world that's kind of. Yeah. Not supervising it, but maybe observing it. And mm-hmm. I, for me, I was just fascinated by it. But how do you navigate oh. the real world again once you've been on the other side of it and you've perhaps learned uh, some truths about
1: what really goes on? Yeah, it's definitely made me um, in some ways more hopeful about the world and about what know what we're doing what we're capable of etc and also just reinforced what i think was already a slightly uh sort of curious or or a very curious sort of uh uh, way of approaching the world as well as just questioning things right always looking for the subtext or what's not being said you know the the headlines behind the headlines as it were and so i guess it's just really it's just forced me to it just it developed and reinforced sort of a critical thinking capability Mm -hmm. um and also Made me really, really humble in a way, in the sense that having or having humility of around my beliefs, because as you alluded to, you know, when you're at a place like the CIA, you do see a lot of what happens behind the scenes, and uh, you, you're part of things and and operations, and much of which you can't talk about. And so then, when in the press and in popular culture and in the media, it's represented in in a specific way, which is not often the full picture you can't really do anything to go out and be like, no, that's wrong. Or, Oh, you, you know, this is actually the way it happened. And it, and it really, again, like I said, it sort of instilled this humility that that's, Always true. Like even in individual interactions with other people, you never have the full picture. You never know what that person or that situation or the full sort of behind the scenes working of it. So, yes, have your opinions and have an informed opinion, but always allow for the possibility that you might be getting some crucial thing wrong. And not because you don't, you know, you haven't tried, but because you just don't know the full picture. Um, so it's that combination of, like I said, yeah, sort of having a more critical thinking and sort of uh, open uh, view of the world, but also recognizing that we're almost always operating with an incomplete uh, amount of information in any scenario.
0: That, that makes lots of sense. And I would be, I will kick myself if I don't ask you this question. Yeah. What do you think about conspiracy theories? Because <laughs> well, I have this yeah. conversation often because mm-hmm. when I was growing up, my brother and I used to discuss conspiracy theories and back then the conspiracy theories really were JFK and uh, uh, Area 51. That was really what we had to go on. And it was something that we (laughs) we thought about and we speculated about, but in a very benign way. But now conspiracy theories are everywhere.
1: So it's interesting. I um, look, I think, we have to be willing to, again, allow for that there are things that we don't know that's happening behind the scenes, but also just n- not always default to like crazy sensationalist like there's, you know, a group, a small cabal of people that's controlling the entire world or like JFK was, a you know, a, a, I don't know, assassinated because of some big government plot. Like there's some real, bi- I can understand why conspiracy theories are Uh, sort of sexy and enticing because we like to think, and this is sort of a psychological bias, right? We have this proportionality bias. We think that big events like a president being assassinated or 9-11 have to have big sort of very complex things behind the scenes. And the reality is life is just complex and crazy. Like the real world, the normal world without anybody pulling the strings is already random enough and is already crazy enough that we don't necessarily need to have this big orchestrated thing that's making these world events happen. And so I think, just look for the evidence, right? Like, And again, without like going into the, the conspiracy theory sort of uh, rabbit hole, what's the evidence? Because the good thing about the democracies in which we both live, and, uh, and hopefully many others of your listeners live, is that at some point the truth always finds a way of coming out. And the governments have, you know, our respective governments have actually established processes to declassify information and to, you know, sort of let the public in on what's happening. And so I think take it, take it with a grain of salt, you know, like all of the conspiracy theories, fine, you know, have whatever your pet theory is, but look for the evidence and look for uh both the evidence that confirms what you believe, of course, fine, but also that disconfirms. And, you know, again, being able to not just cherry pick the information and the data or the the researchers or the podcasts or the thinkers or whatever that are going to just tell you what you already want to believe so yeah I've said, again use that critical thinking capacity that we all have um, because it is so tempting to be like oh well this is a mega thing it happened because of a mega you know sort of orchestrated you know plot behind no that's not how it works not always you know and and so just a bit of a reality check I think is 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 worth inserting into <laughs> all of that I'm so glad I asked you that was such
0: a that such a helpful answer and also just uh, very balanced. Very blessed. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But so actually
1: I will say, sorry, on the on the on yeah. that topic of balance. I think we also have to acknowledge when the reality of the world is imbalanced. And so, you know, we see this all the time in politics. They're like, oh, well, that side is wrong, but they're just as wrong, or that side did this, but they did that. And there's almost this this obsession with finding balance. Sometimes things are imbalanced. And, you know, I will go into a bit of a, a political sort of position on this because in the US, for example, everyone's like, oh, the Republican party, you know, and the Democrats are doing this and the Republicans are doing that. Well, look, you know, It's not that both sides are equally uh, sort of responsible for the polarization of what's happening in American politics. Like the Republican Party were the ones who started, you know, a fringe extremist sort of uh, movement with the Tea Party. And then they did it again with the birther movement when President Obama was running. And then they're doing it again now with Trump. And and so it's not balanced, right? Like there, there has been this mega imbalance in the way that they've been able to hijack political conversations. And that's, again, it's, that's true in day to day life. Yes, there are always two sides to a story. But often there is more responsibility, or there's not always equal responsibility on both parties. So yes, look for balance and and, and appreciate that there might be um, a lot of things that sort of are are balanced and have you know equal weights on both sides of the scale, but there are times where there's not. And and to also be open to to that reality is is worth uh is yeah, it's just worth being aware aware of.
0: It's so interesting in the um so the media, it's almost as if the media has mm-hmm. to present any argument and it's like pantomime. So you've <laughs> got your villain or you've got your hero. So mm-hmm. taking it down to something like whether it's Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard, you can't see both <laughs> yeah. sides. Like one has to be yeah, We have to root for one and one person only yeah. and the other person has to be so deeply abhorrent yeah. because that's what sells papers. And I think it wow. happens across all subject matters, including yeah. political yeah. landscape. And
1: again, with that kind of stuff, look for the evidence, right? Like Johnny Depp was on trial for for many things. So what was the evidence? You know, what was brought to light in that long drawn out process? I don't know. I didn't follow it. But again, you know, there's, there. yes, again, there are two sides to every story, but sometimes... One side of the story is more right or more accurate or has the, the the greater weight of the evidence, and so to again have that element of maybe have your beliefs or your who you're gunning for or whatever or rooting for be in proportion to the evidence that supports that position, as opposed to just being like oh well I just don't like the way he looks or he was an asshole on that interview so I, you know he clearly is the bad guy. I, I don't know you know I'm making up these examples, but I think again it's having that that capacity to to just look for the information and not be swayed by the media or the headlines or any of that yes. kind of stuff.
0: A little bit of critical thinking goes a long way.
1: <laughs> a long
0: way, a long way, yes. Okay, so let's, um, I'm so glad we went there, but let's get back to yeah. what I always open the show with, with my guests, mm. which is, um, I'm always fascinated by the risks that people have taken. Yeah. Because stakes are usually pretty high. At some point you have to decide, am I prepared to lose this thing? But before yeah. we find out about your specific risk, I just was curious, how would you describe your relationship with risk?
1: Ooh, I think I, I mean, this is, it's a hard, it's hard to, in some ways, be objective about this, but I think I have a relatively big-ish risk appetite. Um, And again, it's hard to compare because I don't know what everybody else's sort of level of risk or comfort with risk is. But yeah, I think I am happy doing and I feel confident doing things that others might see as risky, whether it's with my career or with uh, sort of where I live or with, you know, other decisions I've made because I have done my own calculus around, Okay, well, this is the risk. This is the potential reward. This is where I can maybe minimize the potential of it going, you know, this this badly or whatever it is. And so I have my own logic i guess my own process through which i i calculate my own risks but i think perhaps compared to others and i've heard this because people have said it to me so i i don't know if this is factually true but others have often said that they felt that you know i did take some uh risks that they wouldn't necessarily have felt comfortable taking but like i said for me it didn't feel too risky otherwise i wouldn't have done it
0: okay so tell me why uh going to afghanistan
1: at the age of 26 didn't feel that <laughs> risky <laughs> god you know, so it was a risk. Obviously, there's like a real sort of physical safety risk. There's all kinds of you're going into a complete unknown. And, you know, again, the, the kind of work that you're expected to do has you potentially in the field as much or as little, you know, thankfully, um, as as for me, as I wanted to be. Um, so, yes, in, in some ways, people will be like, that's crazy. You're going into this active war zone. You're volunteering to go into this active war zone. Why are you doing that? And for me, like I said, the, the calculus was... It, it, it worked. I mean, it was yes, it's there's always that that potential downside. But, you know, I was I got training, you know, I got a lot of training before I deployed. And that's by design, of course, that, you know, the CIA is not just going to throw you into the into these hostile environments and just, you know, have you fun for yourself. And then also, I had that reassurance of the, the 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 power, the might, the the reach, whatever of the US government and of the agency. And I felt like, you know, they've got my back. Even if the worst were to happen, even if something horrible and unknowable were to happen, I, there is this real sense of, you know, no, no, no person left behind kind of thing. And so it didn't feel like I was going in alone. And I and it felt like any of the big risks, again, to my physical safety, to other things. We're pretty much covered as much as they can be in a scenario like that. So for me, that's how it, That's how I made that calculation. And also, the other sort of the, the positive side of the risk was like, it would be, a. I mean, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity for me as a civilian, you know, to go and have that insight into what was happening, and to contribute to, you know, just helping the decision makers make, make better decisions. And so it almost felt, in some ways, also risky to not take that opportunity because, you know, I was never going to be sort of single and unattached and not have to really worry about anybody other than myself for much longer. And so it was one of those, yeah, take the opportunity while it's here. Because for me, and, and, you know, we might come on to this later, but like, I'm very aware that opportunities don't always come by a second time. You don't always get a second chance. And so if it feels right in the moment for me, I take the opportunities as they come in. And, and it felt like that viewing it both as a potential risk but also as a potential opportunity and then having all of the the practical tangible support behind me made it a relatively easy decision.
0: I'm glad you mentioned opportunities because actually uh, one of the questions is tell me about the opportunities that you've either grabbed or let pass you by and I loved your response <laughs> because you said I grab all the opportunities I see and as you were talking yeah. about that I was like well when do you yeah. know how to say no but you talk yeah. about Performing in London in 2012, new business opportunities, pitching for PR, getting your book on a billboard in Times Square. You you said you always have your eyes open for things that sound interesting and or that I want to do and then do them or try to do them.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. And again, I guess this is weaving in that thing of risk. Like for me, I feel like it's more risky to not try because then I'm the type of person if, if I had to sort of distill my philosophy in in one way I think for me one of the biggest uh opportunities uh for us as individuals and each individual is like just seeing what we're made of and 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 see tapping into that what I think in many ways is a limitless you know sort of human potential and so for me when I see an opportunity I'm like oh that if that is relevant to what I'm doing or something I'm interested in or even just slightly curious about, I will go for it. And so some people view some of these decisions as potentially risky for my career or other things. But for me, it's again, it's a no brainer because I just want to not just both test myself, but also just explore the cool opportunities that the world has to offer. And I am in such a privileged position to, again, be. From a country and live in a country where there are opportunities, and so I don't want to you. I don't want to use fear or anxiety as an excuse, for example. And so, you know, with London 2012, it was I was studying at business school, and uh, was uh, and when the Olympics was going to be hosted in London, and I am a huge sports fan. I mean, I've played sports my whole life. I, I follow sports. I love I love sports and athletic prowess and all of that great stuff. And I just thought they're looking for volunteers. It would be stupid if I didn't try to be a volunteer. And so I went to all of these auditions. They had us in these huge warehouses out in Bow and in East London doing various things to to just sort of glean what kind of talent you might have. Um, and so I ended up getting picked to to, to be the, what they refer to as the placard bears for Team Bahamas. So I was the person who came out, you know, holding the sign that said Team Bahamas, the whole Olympic team behind me at the closing ceremony, holding the flag, like doing all that really cool stuff. But it was risky at the time because everyone's like, oh, but you know, this is the summer after your, your first year as an MBA student, and that's when you're supposed to get the internship, that's gonna turn into the job, that's gonna turn into the career. And everyone's like, that's, you know, or not everyone, but many people thought it was crazy. And I just thought, well, look, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm, I, who knows when I will ever again be living in a city where there that's hosting an Olympics and that needs volunteers. Well, I can always get an internship, but to say no to something like London 2012 just seems like, again, to me, the more risky option than to just go for it. Um, So that's sort of my approach to opportunities is like, yes, not everything is going to uh, be something that I pursue, but I'm always on the lookout, you know, interesting things. what, What are other people doing that, you know, it seems like they're having a good time or, you know, it's meaningful work or whatever it is. And again, if it resonates, if it supports like, you know, my philosophy or my values or whatever else, then I'm going to, I'm going to at least try. It doesn't always happen. And I think that's the other thing people think, oh, well, you know, you've got to do these things and, you know, you're so lucky, but that's only because I try a lot of different things. I've gotten rejected bazillions of times and on balance infinitely more times than I've ever had somebody say yes to me. But it's because I just keep trying and keep experimenting that, The yeses start to add up and it makes all of that other stuff, you know, just seem less weighty because it's just a part of the process, the rejection, the noes, the, you know, door slammed in your face. That's just what it takes to get to that first yes or that next yes. So that's, yeah, that's sort of how I approach sort of opportunities and, and I'm always looking out for them.
0: The way that you're describing the process of how you approach it is making me think about, and I can talk about this in personal experience, I definitely get caught in analysis paralysis. Yeah, So an yeah, opportunity yeah. will present itself and I'll think, I will try to think of all of the scenarios that could possibly happen for yeah. why it's a good thing to do and why it's yeah. a bad thing to do. And sometimes yeah. what that leads to is the paralysis, but also the yeah. opportunity passes. Yeah, 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 <laughs> and yeah. And it's gone. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And I think that for me, again, I I think as I've gotten a little bit older, um, I have that more, that sense of of just like, don't waste your time. You don't know if that opportunity is going to come again. So you either jump on it or you let it go and make your peace with letting it go. But that that in between of like, should I, shouldn't, I should, it's just, it's hellish. And it's, again, as you said, sometimes the opportunity while you're weighing all of the options and the scenarios and the possibilities, that opportunity will go and we don't have really time to waste. And, you know, I think back of like, over my career, I'm sort of, I'm now 42 years old. I it goes so quick. You know, it feels like I was 18 and a freshman at college literally just a couple of months ago. And now, you know, here I am 20 plus years later, you don't realize how quickly the time goes. And so that's why I do feel that sense of urgency um, and try as much as possible to not let the analysis take too long because you never know what's going to happen.
0: It also sounds as though you've got a really good threshold for rejection. You don't
1: let that slow you down. it's (laughs) it's <laughs> oh so yes and no um so no i don't let it slow me down but it still sucks and it still affects you and you know for me the power of words is such a huge thing for me i don't if you have ever come across um the the love languages but for me words of affirmation is my love language and so When someone says something negative or unkind or just rejects you as an individual or your work or whatever it is, it it can feel really personal. But again, the way and for the longest time, I would let it stop me or at least let it slow me down. And then I'd go into that spiral of, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't be doing this and maybe I shouldn't do that. And maybe that person's right or whatever. And then I just realized, well, actually, you know what, that is not that's not other people's stuff is not a good enough reason for me to stop pursuing what I care about and my ambitions and the things that I want to achieve in my life. And so you again, you just have to take it on the chin and acknowledge that it's a part of the process. It's a normal part of the process. Like there will be people who are haters just because they're haters. There will be people who say you suck just because that's who they are. They're the naysayers. They're the haters. They're the ones who just it doesn't matter who you are you just the, you find the wrong person on the wrong day and they will come for you just because they can right and and it's arbitrary but it feels personal because it is you know it is attacking you in many ways but you know, I can't, I can't be out in the world doing what I'm doing, doing meaningful work and expect everyone to love me and nobody to hate me, or everyone to be like, Oh, yeah, that's so amazing. And no one to be like, Oh, that was just a bit mediocre. So look, again, allow people to have their own opinions, right? I mean, I have strong views on many things. And everybody's entitled to their opinion. And sadly, some people are more hateful, and, uh, and slightly uh, vindictive or whatever it is when they express those opinions but they're entitled to it so you know again to just try to put it in its proper place and acknowledge that it's just one person's opinion or thousands of people's opinions but who cares like that's those aren't your people anyway you were never going to reach them and it's not it really isn't personal I think that's
0: such valuable advice and I think I used to as someone who's been a journalist for a long time and now creates yeah. content online I used to, my goal was to get a 100% success rate to write yeah. that thing or to create that podcast that was yeah. just received as being the most in, incredible piece of work by everybody. And, <laughs> and, and Rupal, that never happened. No, it doesn't. And, <laughs> no, and actually doesn't. now, if I put something out there and I get a really negative email or a, or a trolling comment or someone yeah. says, I'm like... Nailed it!
1: <laughs> yeah, because somebody read it. <laughs> yeah, I know. But look, also, you know, you got it like it's. It, it, I don't know. I mean, think of any field of creativity or or contribution or whatever it is. Like, there will be products that some people love, other people take. There will be musicians. There will be artists. There will be books. Like, it is just it. Everybody's going to have their own thing, and not everybody's going to love you. But that's not that's okay. Like the The reason that I keep doing my work is because I want to reach the people who do want to hear from me, who do think that what I have to say is valuable, who do, you know, find what I do inspiring and empowering or you know, changing whatever the way they work or think about stuff. So those those are the people that we have to remember, the people who are like, "Oh, wow, thank you, Emma, for writing that piece or putting out that podcast because it's really done x, y, or Z for me. and and that's and that's how I help recalibrate or reset myself whenever you get those trolls or those haters or those assholes um who make just sometimes really irrelevant comments like I've had people comment on my shoes I've had people just out like lie about things and again it feels really hurtful because you just want you want that justice right you want to be able to fight back you want to be able to prove them wrong but that's I mean you just you gotta let go of that you know you gotta just acknowledge that that's again, part of what it means to contribute and to put yourself out there and just keep doing what you do for the people who need to hear from you.
0: So you mentor, you coach, you provide provide in, inspiration for people in business and uh, guidance. When you obviously have incredible advice, incredible perspective, I'm really curious about when you're sharing this advice with people and you're like, I know this mm-hmm. will serve you really well. <laughs> yeah. But maybe that person isn't yet ready to move the dial to take that step forward. How do you deal with that when you know that, like, this is gold star, this yeah. is like
1: excellent stuff I'm giving you and you're not doing anything with it? I know. So that? it it used to really frustrate me, right, because of that. Like, you're like, I know this is going to work and it's going to help or it's going to solve this problem or this thing. But the reality is like, not everybody's ready when you you first meet them or you meet them for the 10th time, like, and in my own life, I've had experiences where, you know, I've read a book and it's been like, meh, you know, that was so-so. And then I'll read it a few years later or even a few months later. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so much more resonant now. It's really landing this message or this advice or whatever. And that's how it is for all, I think, content that we put out into the world. Obviously we people like you and I wouldn't put anything out if we didn't think it was valuable. But not everybody is ready to see the value. Not everyone needs that form of value when they might first encounter it, or encounter it for the you know nth time. And so at this point, yeah, it's, it's I've just got to this point of like, this is what I have to share. This is how I think I can help, and what you know tools I have available, or whatever the situation is. And if it resonates with you, and you think that it will help, great, let's do it. And if not, also cool, like not a big deal, you know, because it goes back to that experimental approach. I have tried so many different things in my own life, and not all of them work, right? Not everything lands, not every career, not every relationship, all of those things. And so again, allow other people that same privilege to just be like, this isn't really it for me right now. And maybe it never will be. But maybe in a couple of years, it will, you know, And, and, and and let them experiment with what does and doesn't work. Because there is no one right answer. There is no one way of, Doing anything, and so you know, just because we found a lot of value in some of the things that we do and how we share it with the world, doesn't mean it's going to help everyone or reach everyone. And that's that's totally cool. Like the world is a mega place; there are eight billion people. We don't need to reach all eight billion to to make a positive change.
0: It's a good point. It really is because it can be tempting to try to. And go oh my god! On. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because you're like, but I can help all of you. Why won't you let me help you? You know. <laughs>
0: Sometimes you just have to make peace with it. Um, I'm curious because I'm sure listeners will already have assessed, they'd be like, this is a woman who knows her own mind. She's got a lot to say. But when I asked you about the recurring, recurring excuse that you make for yourself, you said that who am I to do X, Y, or Z? I'm only a girl from Staten Island. And that actually there's been some self doubt and, uh, Mm -hmm. some, uh, negative self-talk, but you have, you are overcoming it. So I was really curious to know what that process has been to quiet that voice that is never going to go away.
1: Yeah. Uh, So first acknowledging, well, a couple of things. First, it's acknowledging that that voice even though it's really ugly and nasty sometimes is often a self-defense mechanism, right? Because it often comes up when we're pushing ourselves, when we're stretching, we're doing something new or exciting or different or whatever. And it is emotionally scary. And so that voice is just our basest instincts trying to keep us safe, right? It it, rec- it feels like what we're trying to do is in some way threatening to the, the stable order of our lives. And so it's just trying to warn us. So I think it's also, it's not to try to shut it up. It's to acknowledge that it's trying to help. And then if this is going to work for you, listen to what it's saying, but try to have a conversation with yourself, I guess, in a way around like, well, is any of this factually correct? Again, look at the data. Like, where's the information supporting or refuting this thing, this belief of like, oh, well, who am I? Or, you know, you know, people from Staten Island never go anywhere or whatever. So that's one element, is is acknowledge the voice and use it to help just sharpen your argument, to help you be like, no, well, this is why it's going to succeed, or this is why I can do this thing. Secondly, for me, it's about acknowledging also a lot of that baggage isn't internally sourced. It's other people's stuff that we've internalized. Sometimes it's, you know people conversations we've had or teachers have said something or partners have said something or whatever it is or society's messages especially to women around perfection and scarcity and competition and all of the things so it's to acknowledge that that voice isn't always your voice and to to critically again analyze like where is this coming from I'll give you a really personal example for the longest time Emma I, I thought that I was ugly and I spent some a good amount of my I would say up until my mid-twenties, really believing this, right? Despite, you know, people being nice and giving me compliments. Look, whatever people view, views are on my appearance, whether they think I'm ugly or or not, is irrelevant. But I thought it was. And so I, I spent a lot of time trying to unpack, like, where the hell is this coming from? And I realized it was because as a child, I was a very awkward-looking child, and uh, I had this asshole of an uncle who... From my one, my youngest memories, who would make comments about my hair or call me ugly as his pet name or call me dog as a pet name like oh, she, i know i know my aunt has now long divorced him so you're, you're you know the whole family is better off because of it but he thought it was funny right he thought he was being teasing and and funny and jokey as a five-year-old i was like oh my god this is like a like an authority this is an adult who clearly knows what they're talking about and also when people say negative things it reinforces our own insecurities that are normal in everybody right and so you're like oh well the, if i feel that way and this person is saying it then it must be true and it wasn't until I was much older that I realized like that's where that was coming from and I was like well he's an asshole like why should I let myself believe that thing you know and and then to start looking again for the evidence where like actually I think I look pretty damn good or you know I've gotten random people you know saying nice things about my appearance again this is a very superficial thing but We have so much stuff that other people have given us around what we look like, around our personalities, what we're naturally good at or what we can and can't do and so many times that self that so many of the times that self doubt is is not coming from us it's coming from other people's shit that we've just decided is true so it's to acknowledge that voice but then to also criticize or critically analyze where is it coming from and is this somebody's is this true objectively and again is there data to support it or is it not true and where is the data to support that it's not true right so that's that and then lastly it's just it's the, again the sense of urgency that i now feel of like there is no time to waste. And, you know, f- the first 40 years of my life happened lightning fast, the next 40 will probably just as quick, I just don't want to let any of those hang ups, whether they're my own or from other people slow me down. And so now it's like, Yeah, well, you know, maybe people from Staten Island don't do anything. But actually, I can be the one to be the first, or to acknowledge that, Literally every human being is a so-called nobody until they become a somebody, right? Whether it's pop stars or musicians or politicians or whatever your flavor of famous looks like or people that you admire, they all not you know, they all came from or not all, but many of them came from small towns, from no-name towns, you know, had funny accents or were called ugly when they were children. Everybody had some of some of that stuff, right? And so We sort of saddle ourselves with these notions of like, oh, but I'm just a small time girl. Well, actually, then look for the examples of all the other small time girls. Oprah Winfrey, for goodness sake, was from the middle of nowhere, Mississippi, right? It's not like she had this thing of like, oh, well, I'm not from New York, the capital of media, so I can't do anything. So look for again the disconfirming data and all of these things. It has it's a practice, right? This is not like oh you do this once or twice mm-hmm. and then it's done and you're forever cured of that voice. But it's to recognize it for what it is, not give it undue importance, and then just keep going on despite it. You know, let it be a passenger, but not the driver of 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 the way you live your life.
2: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: It's so interesting, and I think something I definitely used to do in my 20s was try and disprove it, refute it, fight against it. And because it's something that's going on inside, that comes out of you as like a very prickly demeanor, perhaps a little bit touchy-tetchy. Defensive. defense of all of those things and so I think sort of some at some point in my 30s it was like stop trying to disprove it and fight it and laugh yeah. at it. yeah
1: yeah for <laughs> sure. That- Yeah. Look, What again, experiment, right? Whatever works. Like sometimes you need to disprove it. Sometimes you need to laugh at it. Sometimes you just need to let it have its say and then, you know, ignore it. Whatever works. Try different things. But yeah, I I 100% agree. Like everybody's processing these things, this baggage in different ways. And so just do what works for you. Try different things until you find the thing that works for you um can you would you mind giving an
0: example because when I talked about obstacles when I asked you about obstacles mm. this was what you said basically yeah. like taking on other people's stuff and their baggage baggage and internalizing yeah. it and so I was just really interested in if if there was another example that you could give maybe in the workplace sure. because yes. Of-
1: sorry <laughs> so yeah so God. um let's see, I think one of them is around this notion of what a leader looks like and what a leader is supposed to behave like. And we get, again, so much like cultural noise around, oh, well, if you're a CEO, you have to act like this and you have to wear this kind of thing and you have to care about this when you have to behave a certain way. And, you know, despite, like I said, having sort of a very um, sort of navel gazing approach to life and thinking about things, I also am really, really stubborn. And I also have this very sort of um what's the word? Sort of like counter not countercultural, but like um there is a word and I'm totally blanking on it where it's like just uh contrarian. Sorry, a contrarian streak. So if someone says you can't do something or this is how it has to be done, I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna prove you wrong just because I can. Or like mm-hmm. why not try, right? <laughs> so that's really helped because I think again you know, some of the obstacles around like, oh, well, you know, you're, you're a woman or you're a woman of color and you can't be, uh, you know, you won't be taken seriously in a room full of CEOs and investors or property developers or whatever it is, because, you know, you're just a a little girl kind of thing. And that's how often you're treated in those, in those contexts. Right. And I'm like, you know what, screw this. I'm going to show you, I'm going to be who I am. I'm going to, you know, make a success of my business. I'm going to do the work. Uh, and then I'm going to show up. And it's like, you know, this conference that I'm at right now in Berlin, it's a the, the world's biggest conference of private equity and venture capital. So it's a, you know, it's powerful, very, very rich men, mostly really, you know, these fund managers and and bankers and, and you know, sort of high net worth individuals, etc. And so many people are, you know, when I tell them, I'm, I do these kinds of things like, oh, aren't you scared? Aren't you intimidated? And I'm Like, no, why? You know, the reality is, again, like, they are just people. They are just people. And one of the things that working in a war zone and being, you know, a, a young person having to have com- tough conversations with really senior officials and, and generals is you realize to, you need to, one needs to stop obsessing over the, the inequalities and the disparities in rank or perceived importance or whatever it is and focus on the value. And, you know, I, when I was in Afghanistan, I could have gone in and be like, oh, you know, I'm I'm a civilian and I'm a girl and I'm going in and, you know, he's a four star general and his senior advisors are all there and they're all, you know, men in their 60s and whatever. And let that noise distract me. But I didn't because they needed me for a reason. They asked me to be in that room. Re- I mean, they didn't ask me specifically, but they asked the agency to, you know, to send a send a briefer because we had value to share. And so I spent my time and my effort focusing on the value that I was adding to that conversation and what I was contributing as opposed to getting sort of sidelined and distracted by all of the atmospherics around like how unimportant I was. And the same is true in everything I've done in my career. It's like, well, fine, maybe women don't do these things or don't traditionally have, you know, sort of I know, deliver keynotes at, you know, these sort of big conferences or whatever it is. Well, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you how, I'm going to have something interesting to say, and I'm going to focus on my value, how I can, you know, move the conversation forward, how I can add a new insight, add something, you know, sort of of, of uh, strategic value or whatever it looks like, and and just be the change, be the difference, you know, as opposed to obsessing over like, well, you know, I don't belong in this room or all these people are so important. Um, and so that's, that's just sort of how, how I've made my peace with it is like, you know what, I'm going to be the one who, who is different, because I've always been different. I've never really fit in in any sort of one box, right. And in some ways, I spent so much of my childhood trying to fight against and trying to fit in that now I've realized that actually the differences, you know, most of the differences are really, really valuable, and I shouldn't downplay them. And I should embrace them if nothing else. But, you know, it's, it's, it is really impactful. And I can be, part of the change that I want to see in so many different arenas by, you know, yes, maybe being an example for other women or proving, you know, that men in the construct to the men in the construction world that women can build powerful construction companies to or whatever it is, or, you know, come into conferences like this. So I don't feel like I have anything to prove other than to just normalize the fact that women, people of color is just like in normal human beings can quite literally do everything anything uh and so i want to yeah like i said be a part of, of of that sort of awakening or that awareness that it in many ways it is just us that holds ourselves back and if you do have done the work then put yourself out there
0: making me think about you with those those generals in that room it's kind of it's it's yeah. um acknowledging the hierarchy of course the hierarchy exactly but not being intimidated by the hierarchy exactly
1: that's exactly what it is. Yeah, you're not going in and, you know, sort of patting him on the back and high-fiving him and acting all chummy, right? Because that's just not appropriate. But it's to put the hierarchy in its proper place, as you said, acknowledge it, but not to to let it minimize your value in that context.
0: Mm. You have an incredible book out at the moment. Ah, uh, thank to CEO, Which, again, I think is so fascinating. So a, a former guest on this podcast is Chris Voss the FBI Mm -hmm. negotiator. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that what he's done is, which is brilliant is take all of his learnings from what he did in the FBI and transpose them into the world of business. And in a way that really is what you have done, but it's so, it's such a brilliant perspective that can take, I think, I'd love to know your thoughts on this, that can take out the sort of the emotional
1: mess that can get involved and makes it far more clinical. Yes. Yes. I think, thank you. I think that's a, perfect way of, of describing it, because it is the emotional mess. It's like all of that noise and that and the head game that we're always playing against ourselves, right? And and you do need, or some people need the tools, even if it's just trying different things, to, to clear out that mess. And as you say, to be a bit more clinical, to find ways to be more objective without people just being like, oh, just be objective about that opportunity or be objective about your skill set or whatever. I've given the frameworks and you know various elements that people can actually tangibly use to be more objective because it doesn't come naturally to a lot of people like for me i was lucky that analysis and critical thinking do come more naturally to me than not and it was honed and sharpened of course through all of the things i've done in my life but you know i think there's a lot of room for to just like clear that noise and and yeah and i've tried you know to put as much of a, of a toolkit in there as i possibly could
0: if someone's listening to this and they're thinking actually, because you're talking about being in this conference with these high net worth individuals who have their own businesses, it's very hard to be dispassionate about your business. I've interviewed so many CEOs on this podcast and you can probably relate to this. I would say 80 to 90% of them refer to their businesses as their baby at some
1: point. Yeah, <laughs> I
0: love that look. What does that look yeah. mean?
1: <laughs> <laughs> it means not to make it so important. Like To make, again, to put it in its proper place. I am sorry. I will happily walk away from my business if I ever needed to. I am never going to find myself walking away from my children if I had to, right? Like there are just... I appreciate why people talk about it because there are similar aspects, right? Of like, like the commitment and like the passion and whatever, but it's really not apples and apples, right? So let's stop like, you know, making them more important than they are because at the end of the day, your children are human beings, your business is not. And and so, yes, you can care about it, you can nurture it, you can watch it grow and all of those things, but like it is just not the same thing. So let's, let's not let's not be dramatic about how we look at our businesses, right? <laughs> Again, let's be a bit more objective and a bit more clinical about it because I think it also helps us be better decision makers, right? There, so, one of the things, and in, in my, uh, my partner in, in my real estate business, we decided very early on, we are going to make objective business decisions. It's so easy to get wedded to a project or to fall in love with the design of something and I can see why people do that. There is that such a, you know, especially when it's you building the business. But at some point, you have to to put on your big girl pants and realize that, look, you have to separate yourself, yourself your sense of identity, your sense of self-worth, all of those things from this thing that you've created, which I have found is a lot easier to do with a business than it ever would be with, with my children. So, yeah, they're not your kids. Don't treat them like your kids.
0: (laughs) If someone's listening to this and they are in a situation, whether it's about business or a job, whether they own the company or they do not, and they are really enmeshed in a lot of noise about a particular situation, is there a specific tool that you can maybe Mm. share of how to just be able to detach, to be able to see things through a slightly different, potentially more helpful lens?
1: So I think one of the things that, comes with noise is just anxiety. It's like, you know, that analysis paralysis, I don't want to make this the wrong decision or I don't want to take this, you know, whatever, you know, investment or whatever the, the decision might look like. And for me, one of the tools that really helps, again, clear the noise and and really boil things down to their essentials is this notion of playing out the worst case scenario. You know, g- going to, you know, playing out that, like taking that big knotty mess of noise and just saying, okay, well, look, I'm really worried about this decision. What is the worst case that I'm worried about? You know, is it that? It could, I don't know, maybe bankrupt the company or it would mean that, you know, we have to stop growing or it would mean that we lose a big client or whatever the worst case looks like. And then to refocus all of that energy that you were previously sort of pouring on the obsession and the anxiety and the worry and the noise and just letting it stew and fester in your head to actually channel that in a productive capacity and say, "Okay, well, this I've I've named the anxiety i've named what the worst case looks like now let's use all of the, the brain power and the energy that i've released uh by not obsessing over it into thinking about how i'm going to mitigate the possible you know p- the potential sort of catastrophic catastrophicness of of this worst case scenario so it's again it's taking control of your mind really and and playing that head game of like okay it's not just this amorphous blob of of worry and 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 noise it's these are the tangible things that i'm worried about these are the things that i can do or that i can try to do to protect against them and then you just got to leave it up to chance because you can have the best plans the most you know beautifully uh designed strategy the most incredible team and you just get unlucky right there will be a market crash or a pandemic or you know whatever happens so to to again to control the controllables and to refocus on what can i control as opposed to obsessing over all of the things that you can't I just had
0: um, a female, fa- one of the first female fast jet pilots in the RAF on the
1: podcast and her yeah. her thing is control the controllables. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And that's the thing, right? Like good advice is pretty universally applicable. And, and I think, you know, in these high intensity environments that she's, you know, clearly worked in and that I've been uh, do, done a lot of work in throughout my career, you realize that again, a lot of the the basics of leadership of high performance of resilience agility all of these things that have become buzzwords are pretty common so it doesn't matter if you're an athlete or you're a fighter jet or you're you know an intelligence officer all you can do quite literally is control the controllables right you can't control the uncontrollable because obviously that would be a contradiction um and we like to think that we can like game the system or play the market or whatever it is and we can come up with all sorts of logic and, and sort of back uh, reasoning for it. But the reality is always chance or uncertainty or unpredictability. And so, yeah, all you can literally do in any scenario, in every scenario, is control the controllables.
0: This leads me on to something I nearly asked you earlier, but I didn't. Yeah. And now I'm going to ask you now, which is, what if someone has had a series of failures or a series of knockbacks and mm. they, they are now at a point where they have got like failure slash knockback fatigue. And it's like, Mm. I keep trying, I keep picking myself up, I keep dusting myself (laughs) off and every single time. And maybe like, I I know someone who I was chatting to recently, who's had probably well over a year of it, of just like, just hasn't been able to get a break. And I'm wondering if you've seen that in other people and if there's any sort of way you can build a resilience to that or kind of almost Mm. like
1: change your luck. Yeah. So I think as far as changing your luck is concerned, it, look, life is a numbers game in every capacity. And I don't mean like financial numbers, but yeah. it's it's the amount of tries to the successes is hugely skewed in the, the amount of tries, right? So, you know, Thomas Edison failed at inventing the light bulb, what, 10,000 times, but he doesn't, what is great about you know, so there's a quote, and I will butcher it. But effectively, he was like, I didn't fail 10,000 times, it just took me 10,000 tries to get to success or whatever, you know, that you get the, the point. And so it's, it's two things. One, it's, it's just a part of the process. And you have to play the numbers game. And sometimes, you know, let's make up numbers. But let's say it's a 1%, you know, you have to make 100, you have 100 attempts before you get that one thing. Sometimes, you know, that that proportion of one in 100, sometimes the success will come at the first try or the 50th try. But sometimes it won't come until the 100th try. And you will never know, you cannot know, you cannot control how many tries it's going to take until you get there. And then the second thing really is just how important is it to you? You know, I mean, clearly, it was important to Edison to, to crack this thing, otherwise, he would have given up. And similarly, for anyone who's faced setbacks is either it's important enough to you that you do keep going. Or you make peace with the fact that actually maybe it wasn't that important to me to begin with. And I'm just gonna, you know, again, just sort of let that let that be, all of that time and effort. It wasn't, you know, necessarily wasted. It was just I had to go through that to realize that I didn't want it, you know, and and I think there's as much effort that we can sometimes that is worth there is sometimes as much worth in realizing the things we don't want as it is to achieving the things that we do want. And so Yeah, if you want it bad enough, then you have to just keep going. I mean, that really is, it sounds so simplistic, but it's not easy, as we all know, right? But that's how you got to do it is, you know, that year, I mean, in the span, in the the scheme of things over the course of a lifetime, that's going to last on average, what, 80 plus, one year so-called wasted. I mean, you know, that's not that much time. There are people who spent decades of their lives sort of trying and failing at things and then finally getting it. So it just depends on how badly you want it.
0: Good advice. Okay. Well, obviously all of this advice has been distilled into the book. And actually, when I asked you about your greatest success, you said yeah. there, are, there are lots, which is great, <laughs> but that you are really, really proud of um, publishing the book because it was so meaningful to you. Yeah. Um, and also because you said that the process of becoming a published author wasn't what you thought it would be. And I was yeah. really
1: curious by that because I was like, what, what, what were you expecting? Yeah, God. Well, uh, well, first of all, I was expecting that my... my. So I've always wanted to be a writer. I've always loved to write. I've written for my... Since I was very, very young. And I've always wanted to be a published author. But I had always assumed that, for me, that would be writing a fiction book. Because I read a lot of fiction growing up. And, you know, it sort of... It seemed to me like that's what writers did, is they wrote fiction. You know, nonfiction was for, like, you know, boring academics. And so... <laughs> I did write a fiction book and I finished it and I started pitching it out to agents and I had some interest. And then it just, it just left me like the, the interest that my personal interest in the, in getting the story out there, the, the muse, whatever you want to call it, like it just wasn't there anymore. And, and so it didn't get published, but I didn't take that as a sign of like, oh my God, I'm a failure. I have to give up on this thing because I wanted it bad enough to be a published author. And so I just kept writing. I didn't, you know, I didn't make that thing mean more than it had to. I was like, okay, well, you know, I got it out of my system. I've proven to myself that I can write a full sort of book sized book. Um, But I'm just going to keep writing because I love it. I do genuinely just love writing. And so I kept writing. And then I started, you know, writing a little blog about, Actually, my business, and it was more for me to just keep writing while you know, sort of processing what I was learning and and some of the lessons that I was gleaning from from growing a business. And then it, the blog just evolved into something that was just for myself to something I started sharing with people, and then you know turned into a, a more regular weekly newsletter. And it evolved, 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 well, until finally, I had this book and. It, and so the reason the process is so surprising to me is because I never assumed that I would be a nonfiction writer, but now that I am, it just makes so much more sense or not more. It makes sense to me that I am. And um, and the reason it's also so meaningful is because I put so much into that book. Like it, it, and again, I'm not going to make it, you know, sort of overly important and call it my baby. Cause it was never that I had a baby while I was writing that book and they are very, very different things, but it, it just felt like that was one of the stories that I had in me and that I wanted to put out into the world and that I think will help people and will you know provide a different insight on things and sort of you know be a contribution. And so it was meaningful for those two reasons. And then lastly, and, and it comes to me at different times, it hits me at different times. It's also really meaningful because it's a legacy for my family and my two daughters who are two and six, so they're still really, really young. But they've really, they've really internalized the fact that I've written this book, you know, and I think it's my six-year-old, plus her little heart. She's always like asking me like, oh, are you doing this for your book? Or like, mommy, look, that word said CEO in it. CEO is in the title of your book. And like, Uh you know, she's made all this, I know it's beautiful. And when I'm not here for them to have a piece of me, you know, in my content, whether it's my book or my videos or whatever, it's sort of really reassuring, you know, because, they do mean everything to me more so than my other work and my you know my businesses and so it's nice knowing that that's there for them if for nobody else after I'm not here clearly
0: we've been having this conversation I would say that you're very driven if I'm describing you to my friend who I'm having lunch with after this I be like I just spoke to this amazing woman who's got all of this incredible knowledge and she knows exactly how to communicate it but when I asked you about your regrets You said that you wish you had gotten better grades at undergrad. And one of the things I wouldn't have said to my friend at lunch is, um, I feel like RuPaul could have worked harder at any point during (laughs) that life. But equally, when I read your response, I was like, I coasted through university. Yeah, I was at a a British university before it became prohibitively expensive. So I now feel very guilty as well as very lucky to have had that experience. But for me, it was like three years where I learned how to socialize. And I didn't... Like honestly the sort of academic side of it was definitely secondary to the other stuff that was going on and I have regrets about that but maybe not quite your regrets but you do look back at your undergrad years as something that you wish you'd done differently
1: which is I mean it's it's I mean and I was thinking hard about it because regret is such a loaded word right so it's not like For me, it's a lighter form of regret. It's not that like, oh, it's sort of. I think about it and obsess over it, and I wish I could go back. I definitely do not wish I could go back uh, to to fix that. But the reason I regret it is because even while I was there, I felt like I was coasting, and I don't like to coast. Mm. It's it's not. It's just it doesn't feel right for me. And so while it was fun and I had a great time and I got good enough grades, so I you know I wasn't like at the bottom or anything. But I just even then felt like. If I worked hard enough, could I have graduated with honors from this really prestigious university, which to me, especially back then when I was like a mega nerd, you know, I finished at the top of my high school class and like I've always been a straight A student. Like good grades are a big deal to me. And to have just decided that I was gonna be like the about it just felt a bit weird. So my regret isn't that, oh, it's changed the nature of my career or, like, affected my life negatively in any way. It's more just I wasted that opportunity to to test myself and see if I could have reached sort of that academic height.
0: Right. I hear you. So, yeah we've made peace with it.
1: (laughs) Yes, we have. Yeah. And even then, like I said, I I made peace with it because I just I've also just started realizing, well, look, again, if it was important enough to me to have done it, I would have done it. But clearly, Mm -hmm. for whatever reasons, or many reasons, or maybe illogical reasons, at the time, it just wasn't, you know, it took it took a I, I, I prioritized it in the way I did or didn't, because that's, what I was doing in the moment. So it's again, it's sort of acknowledging that I had a I had a role to play in this process is I wasn't like somebody, I'm not like somebody's victim or like a victim of myself. I made those choices. Um, And so it's a very light regret.
0: Do you feel as though you kind of brought the the energy to the masters? Do you kind of was it like you were kind of able to for sure. A (laughs) hundred percent.
1: And it was also easier because it was more concentrated. My master's degree was one year versus, you know, the uh undergrad, which was four. So it just felt like yep, I'm gonna go guns blazing. And then I did. Yeah, to to your point, yeah, I did sort of prove to myself what I could do when I really sort of buckled down.
0: One of my favorite questions that I ask my guests is to talk to me about a time when you were wrong, because it tends to elicit a very vulnerable yeah. answer. And I, when I read yours, I was really interested to read it because you said there have been times when I've tested loved ones instead of letting them be who they are, mm-hmm. and I thought that was fascinating. <laughs>
1: God, so I I think in my sort of, and I probably should have made this my answer to one of your questions about sort of one of the things that you were to fix on, but like when I'm not at my best, I keep, I'm the type of person who sort of keeps score. And I think in relationships, I have definitely been, you know, sort of, I have definitely done that where I've been like, oh, well, if that person really cared about me, they would have just figured out what I wanted to do for my birthday. Or if that person really loved me, they would have realized that I needed to talk and or whatever it is, right? So we put, or we, I would start, yeah, consciously, unconsciously, subconsciously doing these little sort of tests of like, well, if they really loved me, this is how they would prove it. And the reality is like, that's such a childish way of approaching relationships, right? Because why do we expect people we love to be able to read our minds? We don't read their minds perfectly all the time. And, you know, I liken it to sort of like going to a restaurant and then, and just sitting there and being like, okay, well, you must know what I want. So give it to me, you know, like, and, and that's such a, it's a small thing. So when it is actually more important, why do we make things a guessing game? And so with time and maturity, I've realized that actually, if people love me, I don't, they don't have to constantly prove their worth to me or, prove. Or, no, people should prove the fact, prove that they deserve to be in your life, but they shouldn't be tested. And, you know, and they shouldn't be expected to read your mind or to intuit what you want to do or any of those things, because like, we change, we evolve, like, you know, sometimes I'm unpredictable, like all of this stuff. And so I do feel like it took me too long, probably. And I will admit, i probably until sort of my mid thirties to realize, actually, just let them be who they are and let me just make it easier for them to live up to my expectations by telling them what I want, by telling them what I expect. And then it's not as if like they're under any obligation to deliver on it. But if they do, that's great. I've empowered them to do that. And if they don't, well, then that's just information that I can use to then maybe make changes in the relationship if required or not. But it's such a silly thing to to test people, I think. Um, so and, and to keep score. And, and even now I find myself doing it, you know, I'm away from my family a lot, and especially recently. And I'm like, Oh, God, I've been away for eight days, or I've been away for three days. So when I get home, you know let my husband who's you know with our kids when I'm away I should let him go and do whatever he wants for uh, eight days or whatever and and he just doesn't think like that like he's not keeping score he's not like oh well you know I did the pickups six times last week so you're gonna do them six times this week like he's just like if it needs to get done it'll get done if it's for our family then I'll do it it doesn't matter who where the balance or imbalance and again it goes back to that like some things are just imbalanced and sometimes they're imbalanced for a time sometimes they're imbalanced for or, you know, uh for a much longer period, but not everything has to be in balance, not everything has to be tit for tat, which is what it can often uh digress into in in relationships. So I I've learned thankfully with his sort of just his like much more like chill, laid-back approach to things of like, look, this is for our family, I'm gonna do it. Like that's it. It doesn't matter, right? Uh, to try to to do that more often, but it doesn't come naturally. And I have to catch myself, you know, from from slipping back into those uh, my old ways. I have
0: nodded enthusiastically throughout all of that because I am such a scorekeeper, and I didn't realize until a few years no. ago. And I don't know what I was. I don't know why I was keeping score, but yes. I was. I've done this, and it was expe- it was expectation of reciprocation.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, which, I know. Which I had to let go of. Exactly, because it's that thing of, again. Just be a grown up. Like, not everything can be reciprocated. Not everything should be reciprocated. And just because you've done something doesn't mean that the response is going to be equal or whatever it is. It's like, again, some things are just imbalanced. And as you said, like, you shouldn't you shouldn't do it in anticipation of getting it back necessarily.
0: Um, I asked as well, I've said, I always ask my guests, is there anything that I, that I missed that you want listeners to know? And I thought this is yeah. really, really great because you said we all have stuff in inverted commas. And because you work with these uh, CEOs and business people, and so you said, whether it's the most esteemed CEO or the youngest school kid, it's so important to have humility and not be an asshole and realize that we all have stuff that we're trying to work through, which is
1: such good insight because I think we all know (laughs) it to be true. We all need reminding. And I think that's why I share so openly about some of my stuff because the reality is, is like, Look. Let's okay, I will I will sort of take a bit of a position here because I think yes, everybody has stuff and everyone's got stuff going on, but not all of our stuff needs to be brought into every aspect of our lives right so there is there there are clear boundaries that we need to establish and you know not everything should be a free for all but that said the reason i think it's worth acknowledging and knowing that everyone's going through stuff is again more to just help with our own our own head game around like oh that person has you know they're so successful or they're so this or they're so that and that's true they obviously have whatever they have, but you don't know, again, this is where the humility comes in. You don't know what it took to get there. You don't know what demons they're battling even now that they're there. You don't know what issues they, what baggage they picked up from their parents or from their, I don't know, families or marriages or whatever it is. So again, to just whenever possible to just not be an asshole, right? Mm -hmm. Even if people are assholes to you, to just respond however you feel is appropriate in the moment but again not to take it personally because sometimes when people are obnoxious and in your face that's their stuff that they're putting on you and then it becomes your stuff versus their stuff you know and so it's 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 all just there you know and sometimes it's it's more intense and louder for some than it is for others but just know that it's there and it's okay so even if you have a lot of stuff going on you can still reach whatever height you can still you know accomplish whatever thing it doesn't have to stop you
0: Yeah, I think I listened to Tim Ferriss quite a lot. And I think I can't remember the name of the guest, but they were talking about might even have been Tim himself Mm
1: -hmm. talking
0: about. And I started listening to Tim Ferriss because I was really struggling with my mental health. And I was like, I was being really mean to myself. So I would plug into his podcast to listen to successful people talk about how they got themselves out of similar situations. And in one of the episodes, someone said something like, if you leave the house in the morning and you interact with a handful of people and one of those people is a dickhead. Mm-hmm. then they're a dickhead. Yeah. If you leave the house in the morning and everyone that you interact with is a dickhead, then you're the yeah. dickhead. Ah! <laughs> yeah. And what I realized yeah. is that because of the stuff that I was going through, yeah. my energy, I was leaving the house every day so defensive yeah. that I was the dickhead yeah. or the asshole in this situation. And I'm just curious yeah. if you have if there's one thing someone can do, other than realize that actually you're the one bringing the negative energy into the yeah. world, but if yeah. there's one yeah. thing you can do to not show up as the arsehole, what, mm-hmm. what is it?
1: Force yourself to smile, and it's and, and that's again, it sounds really simplistic, and I hate telling women to smile because when tell us all, oh, you should smile, or why so you know serious, <laughs> or you know the whole resting bitch face thing. But parking that to one side, if it's just a pattern break. Because again, when we are stewing in our own stuff and our own frustrations and anger and intensity and whatever else, literally forcing yourself to smile rewires what's happening in your brain. And it's this cool thing of like, it's not, you know, a friend of mine said once to me, we don't act the way we feel, we feel the way we act. And I think I think both are true, actually. I don't think it's one or the other, but sometimes we can feel the way we act. So if we are feeling really just like, Ugh, and tight and tense and sometimes forcing yourself. And I have struggled with this as well to like smile through gritted teeth and just, you know, go out and try to pattern break because that's at the end of the day, like everyone's like, oh, well, it's so hard. Well, yes, this stuff is hard, right? Like it's not easy, but it takes practice. It takes intention. It takes effort, but it's for you. So if you're not going to put in the work, then, then it's almost pointless to even listen to to podcasts or read books or whatever, because, it's not just listening is going to automatically transform your life. It's actually doing the things. And we, we, again, we overcomplicate it. We think, you know, big change needs to come from big changes in action. And sometimes it's small things and that they just accumulate over time and they break that pattern. And for me, break the pattern break of like getting out of that spiral, that death spiral of like, this is so bad. And then this is bad. You know, when we're in a negative headspace, all we see is the bad things in our lives the things that are going wrong, the things that we hate. And it's exhausting. So whatever we can do, and for me, I've now made my pattern break is to time myself, to give myself quite literally five minutes to stew and fume and scream and cry, do all the things that I need to do, whatever it is. And then when that alarm goes off, I'm done. It's going back to like controlling the controllables. So whatever pattern breaks you need, I think forcing yourself to smile is a great one. Or Another one that's worked for me is setting, setting an alarm for when I will let myself vent and get it out of my system, because some people do just need to vent and get things out of their system, but to make that process a lot faster than just letting it infect the rest of your life.
0: I love that. Okay. We have reached the end of our time together, but I'm going to ask you about something that I saw at the end of your book, which, and obviously listeners, the links to the book will be in the show notes, but it ends with an executive order, which I (laughs) love. And the executive order is to take the ride. What do you mean by that? And um, I just thought it'd be a lovely note on which to leave Yeah.
1: Uh, so I guess if you know, again, I had to distill my life's philosophy in any one phrase, it's to never say no to an adventure. And I mean, you know, regardless, or maybe not regardless, but many people obviously have different ideas of what happens after this life, my view is, this is all we've got in this form, in this iteration, this is all we are getting. And so take that ride like life doesn't have to be just about chasing happiness and success and fulfillment. It can be those things. But like the ride isn't just riding the highs. It's also riding the lows and and owning that that's part of the experience. But to to pursue aliveness as opposed to just pursuing happiness and and aliveness is a ride. It's it's a roller coaster. Sometimes you're down at the the most like deep fathomless pits ever and it feels like you're never coming out but the ride will take you if you persist and you do the work and you you know ask for help all of those things it will take you in 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 a different direction and to just be open to where the ride is going to to look for those opportunities to say yes to those little adventures that come your way to I don't know volunteer in the Olympics or maybe I don't know try a trapeze class or whatever it looks like you know but we don't have a lot of time there's a great book um Called 4,000 Weeks. And uh, the author talks about how the average human being, uh, if we live to 80, will get approximately 4,000 weeks of life. And that's not a lot of time, you guys. Like, you know, so much of it, especially again, if you're sort of halfway through those 4,000 weeks as I am, it goes really, really quick. So, you know, acknowledge, yes life is tough and it's hard and it's many things. But in many ways, if you are in a position to be listening to a podcast like this, it means you have technology. It means you have free time. It means you live in a country that has open access to information. You're already winning. So let's stop the pity party. And again, do the work, get the help, all of that stuff. But like, don't waste this opportunity that you've got. This is the ultimate opportunity and just don't waste it.
0: I knew I was going to love speaking to you and I've absolutely (laughs) adored it thank you so much it has been such a pleasure to learn your life lessons hear your perspective and just um, absorb all of this wisdom I'll be listening to this and probably writing down some like sound bites because there were a lot in there that I will want to make into Um, t-shirts listeners the links to the book your social media everything will be in the show notes is there anything else you want me to share no, I think we've we've covered a lot of ground, Emma. This was wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> we've covered a lot of ground. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode, then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode you have to answer a couple of questions but we cannot wait to see you there come over and join the conversation thank you so much for listening i will see you on the next one